So we're going to continue on in our Anchor Sermon Series. Um, anchors were an early symbol of those people who followed Christ, even though a lot of us think like the cross probably was the first. In fact, anchors were widely used in the early church, uh, in part because it kind of just references this text right here. Um, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure in Hebrews 6.19. So over the next several weeks, we're going to be anchoring ourselves. We're going to be anchoring ourselves in the catechism. And the catechism is a uh, traditional, older, um, like from the 1600s and even earlier, uh, is a way of theological training. And so what the catechism is, is it's questions and answers. There's a question that is presented and there's an answer. And what would happen in uh, earlier times, uh, because most people didn't read, we would all get together, I would ask a question, and then you would recite the answer um, to me or to each other. And so when we think about this idea of like training ourselves up theologically, training ourselves up biblically or anchoring ourselves biblically. Uh, this goes all the way back into the early roots of Judaism and that the Jews still to this day, uh, they will recite or say the Shema each morning here, a group of Jewish women who are practicing because the Shema says you should tie it up on your hand or your foreheads. And, and so this idea of like reciting certain sayings uh, within Judaism or Christianity has a lot of uh, history to it. And so the Shema comes out of Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And it's so Jesus says it's the greatest of all the commandments. And then last week I talked about this idea of the first creed in early church because creeds are important, um, because there are simple ways of saying theologies. And so the first uh, creed that came out of the early church is Jesus is Lord. That's what they would have said to one another. Again, for us, it's not that big of a deal. But back then it would have been a big deal because um, what they were saying is that Caesar wasn't Lord. And if you said anyone was Lord, but... It was a offense against the state and you could be killed. So theology, and as we're going through this, this is kind of an exercise in theology. And theology is what we believe about God. And what we believe about God is extremely powerful. If you have a theology or a belief about God that God is angry, then more than likely you will live in fear. If you believe that God is distant, you will uh, live thinking God might not care about everything that you're going through. If he's distant, you're like, well, why does God care about what's going on in my life? If you believe God is present and loving, you can trust that he is working in you, and you might believe that the there is purpose in the pain that you are experiencing right now or at some point in time in your life. So what you believe about God is extremely important because it will shape the way that you live. Again, if God is angry, then you're like, oh, I've always got to make him happy. But if God is loving and kind, then you're, then you're able to live in a way that says like, well, oh, God loves me and he's kind. And then so I can live freely before him. So catechism is a way of theological training. Um, and in my opinion, it points towards two uh, major ideas. Is that why is Jesus worthy of being Lord? So the earliest Christian creed that we have is that Jesus is Lord. So when we look at catechism, it answers a couple questions. Why is Jesus worthy of being Lord? Right? Lord out there and also Lord of my life. And I think it begs the question at the same time, is Jesus Lord of your life? So the early creed still, in my mind, holds weight. Jesus is Lord. 
So what we're going through is the Westminster Catechism. Uh, was created in 1600, 1648, or somewhere around there. And it was created by the Church of England, Scotland, and Ireland. That's where it comes from. We're going through the shorter one because um, the longer one is much longer. And I don't know, I don't really got so much time, man, you know. And so essentially what the, uh, the shorter catechism is, or the Westminster Catechism, it's 107 questions and answers. And so they'll ask the question, and then they'll give the answer. So last week we looked at the first question and answer, which is this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so um, essentially, what it's saying is, what is the chief end of man? Well, man's chief end is to glorify God. Jesus is Lord of my life and all of my life, okay? That he is Lord. The chief end of my life is to glorify God because he is the Lord of my life. And at the same time, which, and this is why I chose the Westminster Catechism, and to enjoy him forever. I'm meant to enjoy, this is not meant to be some like bad process where, you know, I'm in discomfort or I don't like what it is that I'm doing. I'm meant to enjoy this. It's meant to be an enjoyable relationship that I have with him. So again, theologically speaking, he is God. I am not. I, I, I exalt him and bow down to him. And yet he has also created me for a purpose, and that purpose and our relationship is meant to be pleasurable. So when I think about this, and again, pleasure, God creates us for pleasure, and we have pleasurable things. When I think about Jesus being Lord, and what really proves that, and Jesus wanting us to enjoy our relationship with him, Jesus is Lord, and it's pleasurable, I think of chocolate. So good. How do I know Jesus is Lord? Because there's chocolate. How do I know that he wants me to enjoy life? Because there's chocolate. I'm not joking. So good. It's so good. You're like, thank you, Lord. I mean, most of us just take it for granted. Have you ever stopped to think, like, God has created this, like, totally enjoyable experience for me to like, I don't know. I mean, maybe you could eat too much chocolate. I'm sure I have. What is man? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to say, thank you, Lord, for the chocolate and then enjoy it. Westminster Catechism. Okay, 107 questions and answers. So today what we're going to do is we're going to jump to 18, number 18. Um, again, there's 107 of them. Number one is, what is man here for? And so what we see is in number one, it's like, what is the chief end of man? Like, why is man here to begin with? But as we start to go through the questions, we start to tackle different theological questions, right? And so as we get to 18, what we see is, um, what happened to our relationship? That's what we see, although they didn't put it in that language, right? What is man here for? And then by 18, it's like, hey, what happened to our relationship? Seems to have gone a little bit astray because something's wrong here. And so here's number 18. Question 18. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell? Answer. The sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed 
from it. So when we look at number one, what is the chief end of man? To worship and enjoy God. But then something goes wrong in our relationship with God. Uh, something goes wrong with our relationship with others. So it's not just with God. Something goes wrong with our relationship with God. Something goes wrong with our relationship with others. And I would say something goes wrong with our relationship with ourself. There's a profound thing that ends up happening in humankind to where things just get distorted. Or I would put it like this. How did we get from this to where we're having communion with God. He, he touches us. The breath of God enters into us. That we represent, uh, we are created in the image of God. We are, we are created without, uh, right? We're, we just have communion with God. How did we get from that to this? At first, we have perfect communion with God. But then something happens that so distorts everything that all of these things, I mean, all of these things, they're just not, they're not historical things. These are like current things. All of these things still exist within our current context. So the Bible has a simple term for all of this, which is sin. So when we read this, um, I don't know that anyone is using the terminology of where into, but I think you should. I think you should try as a biblical practice this week just to use the term where into in some sentence as you're talking to someone else, uh, just to try. Um, so uh, how, how did, I, I kind of, I rewrote this. Uh, how did man fall into his sinful condition? The way man got into this condition is Adam's first sin, his desire for control and self-righteousness, which corrupted all of him. This is known as original sin, but it's not just his sin, but all the sins that followed, including yours. This is my summary. Is it totally accurate? No. Is it close enough? Yes. So, answering the question, why is mankind messed up? I don't know what I was doing here recently. I'm not sure. I, yeah, I'm not sure what I was doing, but it, I, maybe because I, I, I'm, a, um, I'm bivocational, I actually I do therapy with folks throughout the first part of the week. And I, I think I was sitting in a supervision, and it just dawned on me, like, dysfunction is the norm. That, that's just the thought that I had. Like, dysfunction is actually the norm. It's just everywhere. Dysfunction. I'm dysfunctional. You're dysfunctional. Life in so many ways is dysfunctional. And the Bible refers to the reason as sin. And so sin means to miss the mark. I mean, literally, that's what it means, to miss the mark. We just, we miss the mark. And I don't think that does good enough um, in terms of, like, communicating that. Here recently, I purchased a... Um, the it, the first person's translation of the New Testament, which is translated by uh, for indigenous people, so Native Americans, and so it's all it's all translated in terminology they would use, which is I mean it's really good and it's really interesting. At first, it's really hard to 
some of the language is a bit different, but it's really cool. So in the back, they have all these definitions, and this is the definition that they have for sin. Bad hearts and broken ways. Sin. For many of our native people, the English word sin evokes the memories of boarding school, where sin was often the length of our hair, or speaking in our native language, or anything related to our cultures. The biblical concept of sin is expressed in the Greek word hamartia, I think that's how you pronounce it, which means to miss the mark or to fail to do what is right. In other words, not living in the ways Creator wants us to live. All human beings are broken and fail to live in Creator's ways. Some try but fail, some don't even try at all, and other give themselves over to evil ways. We have translated sin as either bad hearts, wrongdoings, or broken ways, depending on which one best fits the context. So I thought that that was really kind of illuminating, trying to figure out, like, what do you mean by sin? And, um, and I like that they break it down, that, that, you know, in the past it was like, hey, your hair is too long, or don't use that language. You know, but this idea of wrongdoings, or bad hearts, wrongdoings, or broken ways. We all fail to live up to the mark. Each of us at some point in time disobeys and sins, and because God is just, there must be a penalty for sin. So if we were to, I saw this illustration, I thought that this was uh, good, in that father, son, spirit, at one point in time, they have perfect communion. Everything was perfect. There was no sin. And so there was communion between heaven and earth. There was communion between God and man. But what ends up happening is, is that sin enters in. And so then this, there's this divide between God and man because man has disobeyed. And so because God is just, there must be a penalty for sin and that God or that man has acted in his own righteousness. And so again, there's this divide between uh, God and man. So when we read in scripture, it says the penalty for sin is death. And so when we think about this, we're like, well, whose sin? Adam's sin and my sin. Why am I being blamed for another person's sin? Like, why, why am I to blame for Adam's sin? Like, take responsibility for your own life, Adam. <laughs> why am I being, why am I responsible for his sin? Well, when you read the biblical text, here, here's the thing. Adam is what we call in theology a federal head, okay? A federal head uh, essentially represents all of mankind. And so Adam represents mankind. And so when he sins, then sin enters into man, uh, mankind. Now, we can all be angry at Adam, but the reality ends up being everyone in this room knows that you would have done the same thing. Now, it might not have been the same sin, but at some point in time, you'd just be, you know, God be like, hey, don't think about a pink elephant. And you're like, what pink elephant, right? So at some point in time, all of us would have done what Adam and Eve did. And so they represent us. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26, Paul says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 
But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, he says, for since death came through a man, for as in Adam all die. And so, these aren't just passing statements by the Apostle Paul. He's not just like, well, let's kind of like, what's it all mean? Um, these are conclusions as to our standing before God. Uh, for since death came through a man, for as in Adam all die. St. Augustine, who was a great uh, theologian, he termed the phrase original sin, meaning that sin is embedded, embedded into our DNA. It's just part of who we are when we are born. So sin and the penalty of sin, which is death, is present within us. Later, Paul says this in Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who is the pattern of the one to come. Again, sin entered the world through one man and death with it. So it's not about keeping the law, because in reality, no one could keep the law. Sin was already present, and Adam is, uh, uh, who is the pattern of the one to come. So Adam represents mankind, Adam is a federal head. In Adam, sin enters the human race, and in reality, you would have done the same thing. And we all kind of reaffirm we would have done the same thing by doing the same thing regularly, right? Okay, so, Adam. But, Jesus. Jesus is also a federal head theologically, in that he represents all mankind. Jesus is referenced as the second Adam, but probably more correctly, not the second Adam, but the last Adam. Okay? So Adam is the federal head. He represents all of mankind. Jesus is the last Adam, in that he also represents all of mankind. Uh, Paul says this, in Romans 5, 15 through 17. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed uh, one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So how do we overcome the power of sin and death? The reality is we don't. The reality is we can't. It's not something that we can achieve. We can't 
follow the law good enough because in the end, each one of us will break the law. We can't be good enough because there's always going to be something inside of us that just does something bad, have some type of bad thoughts, um, right? I mean, you get into your car and you're driving home, you're going more than likely going to have a bad thought. God knows, right? You, know, you want to hear a funny story? We were actually driving home from church. I was driving home from church and... <laughs> I think someone someone cut me off and and I was like praise the lord brother and I look over it was someone from the church I felt so convicted I was like oh my gosh that's horrible and like really nice people from the church I was like oh my god I've totally changed my ways <laughs> If something could heal my mouth in my car it'd be awesome Oh, Lord, it's like the last frontier, huh? Sin is your mouth in your car. All right, moving on. So how do we overcome the power of sin and death? I mean, you can't. You can't. Sorry about the technology. It's a blessing and a curse. We don't. Um, we can't. Uh, but ultimately, Jesus, Jesus does. Like wholeheartedly. And I know I show this, and you guys are like, that's super funny. But actually, it's not. It's really so cool and so beautiful in a million different ways that in so many ways, the ways in which we picture Jesus, so it's really just like Christian and weird and religious, you know, that we dress him up in a suit and a tie, and we dress him up in our own mind to make him be someone that he's not. But in the end, was he moral? Was he good? Yeah. Um, did he cuss? Actually, there might actually be some text in there that actually said that he used foul language rightly, you know. Uh, but Jesus is free. Jesus is not bound by the law. Jesus is not bound by sin. Jesus is free to do whatever it is that he wants to do. I mean, how many of us would like to be able to dance without any type of inhibition and just do what it is that we want to do? Jesus is free to break dance. Jesus is free to be able to flex his abs, obviously, right? You know, but he's not bound by, I love this because he's not bound by religion. I have nothing against the Catholic, I mean, well, there are certain things I have against every church, you know, but, you know, the priests represent legalism, right? The priests represent the law. The priests represent Christianity and those things that would try and mold you into that, whereas Jesus is 100% free. How do you overcome sin? Well, you can't. You are powerless. But Jesus can overcome sin, and he has. Jesus is not bound by sin. He never sinned. He's the only human because he is both fully God and fully man to have never sinned. Therefore, his life and his death, he's completely free. What we were powerless to do through the law or by justifying ourselves, Jesus does for us. And because he is sinless, he is able to overcome sin. He is both fully God and fully man in that he experienced both. He truly is unique. He doesn't point to the way. When you look at other religious systems, they're pointing to a way or a way of doing things. He is the way. Full stop. He is the way. He is the way. 
For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? As all mankind is aligned with Adam's sin and our own sin, we can now align ourselves with him. When I was, uh, I mean, I didn't grow up a Christian. Um, and so they, I had these neighbors, and uh, they're an older couple, but I was younger then, so everyone seemed a little bit older. And uh, before I was a Christian, you know, we, you know, I was partying, drinking, smoking weed, you know, just all this stuff. And so the religious neighbors, they were always like these weird, fuddy-duddy people to me. And so they were all, you know, proper and, you know, hey, <laughs> you know, hey, neighbor. And I'm just all crazy. Vita buses out in the front yard and, you know, doing all this crazy stuff. And and so I remember when I, I just had given my life to Christ um, I, over here at Tiger Field and, and I was just living in this funky little shack. I was living in the laundry room with this other guy. He was trying to save money on rent and just buy you know, booze and weed. And I gave my life to Christ. At some point in time, that house completely falls apart. And we can't live there anymore, which is not surprising because, you know, got we got two Catholic guys that I'm shooting up with steroids. Me and my buddy are dropping acid and smoking weed and drinking all the time. And then we got this guy who's using meth, right? So the house was not meant to last. And so at some point in time, I moved back in with my mom, but I've like, giving my life to Christ because I was reading through the Beatitudes and, you know, it said, blessed are the peacemakers. So I had long hair and thought I was this hippie dude. And I was like, I'm a peacemaker. And then I went to John 3.16. It says you have to be born again. I was like, Jesus, I want to be born again. So, you know, my housemates come home and I'm like, hey, you know, we're partying tonight because I'm born again. And they're like, well, the Catholic guys are like, what? Um, And so anyways, I go back home. Now I'm born again, I'm following Jesus, but it wasn't totally like, not like totally, it hadn't totally sunk in. And so the next door neighbors, I knew that they were Christian, but they were a little bit different than I was, and um, they had this picture. And it was this little tiny, and I still have it, it's about this this big, and it's uh, Salvador Dali's uh, picture of the Christ. And I think they were at his yard sale, and I bought it for 25 cents. And I remember it was the first Christian thing I ever put in my room. And I put it on the wall, and I remember, I remember we were all just getting, you know, in my room, and we're all just getting loaded. And someone looked over at the wall, and they were like, what's up, McMasters? You're like a Christian now, or what? I was like, and I'm high, so I'm all freaking out. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and I held, I hung that picture on my wall. And yeah, it was the first religious picture I ever put on my wall. But the thing is about um, Salvador Dali, who one is just absolutely brilliant. One of the finest painters of all time. And, and super weird, if you ever look at any of his stuff. This is a really normal picture 
our painting. But what you see is the symbolism in it is that obviously Jesus is up on the cross, right? And it's all black, and so it's representing death. So you see that Jesus dies. But when you look down, what is Jesus looking at? Well, he's looking at the fishermen. And so, so what you see in the symbolism of it all is that actually Jesus is dying. But what is he dying for? Well, he's dying for the fishermen. I mean, it's a, just a beautiful profound, lovely, and he did all these weird like angles. But what you, so you kind of see this all breaking down, but what you don't see is that Salvador Dali, he actually doesn't put any nails into Jesus's hands. Now from far away you look at it, and this is the beautiful thing about theology and art. And so what actually is holding Jesus to the cross? Jesus is holding Jesus to the cross. God is holding Jesus to the cross. And why? For you. For me. My sin. It's his choice. He chooses to do that. How do you overcome sin? You can't. You never have and you never will be able to. I mean, at this point in time, I'm not going to have anybody raise their hand, but how many like New Year's resolutions aren't even happening? We're not even done with January. I mean, if we can't keep our resolutions, just think about like sin. It's impossible for you to overcome sin. But that's what Jesus does. And he allows himself, he chooses to be nailed to the cross. It's his choice. Nails don't hold him there. He holds himself there. So, we have the choice to choose life over death. Penalty of sin is death. But we have the opportunity to choose life in him. We only need to agree with the earliest Christian creed. It still holds weight. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of my life. Jesus is Lord of my death. I've chosen to align myself with him. Sin and death no longer have a hold on me. As he was resurrected, I will be resurrected as well. Jesus is Lord. First Corinthians 5, 52 through 57. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you overcome sin? You cannot. But he can. In sin, I am bound to death. Jesus goes to the cross and dies for my sin. If I take his death as my own, then I get his life. If I take his death as my own, then as he was resurrected on the third day, at one point in time, I will be resurrected as well. 
the significance of the resurrection is not so much that he defeated sin, but that there's a new life, and new life has been created. And we too can share in that new life where there will be no death, there will be no hospitals, there'll be no police stations, there'll be no rehabs, there'll be no armies, there'll be no governments, there'll be no taxes. It will be as he intended it to be. If I choose his death as my own, then I get his life. Jesus is Lord. So, catechism is a way of theological training, and in my opinion, points to these two main ideas. Why is Jesus, why is Jesus worthy of being Lord? And is Jesus Lord of your life? And in the end, God has given you the ability to answer both those questions. You are free to choose just like Adam. Just like Adam was free to choose, you can choose. But I'll choose breakdancing Jesus. I think he's pretty, like, free which is what I want, freedom. We are going to have communion. We do this each Sunday. Um, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, or if you would like to start following Christ today, then the communion table is open to you. Um, the way that we do communion is everyone comes down to the center aisle here. You grab a piece of the cracker, you dip it in the wine, and then you go around the sides like this. And then we all hold on to the elements together, and then we will all take communion uh, together. So if you would like to take communion, please come on down.
Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Jesus, we thank you that you chose to be nailed to the cross for us. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your life. Thank you that your body was broken and your blood was poured out. Help us to be able to see you as you are, that we can appreciate the gift that you've given us. Let's partake. Why don't we stand? Mm. If after the service, I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over us, but if after the service you would like to come and get prayer from me or someone else, we'd love to be able to lay hands on you and pray for you. In Scripture, powerful things happens when we lay hands on one another and pray for one another. Uh, so if there's anything in your life, maybe God spoke to you during the sermon or worship, or there's just something that you can't find traction in, why not just share that with us, and we would lay hands on you and pray for you. Uh, but I'm going to pray for us right now. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to move among us. Come, Holy Spirit. Meet with us. Speak to us. You know all the questions we're asking. You know all the pain that we're wrestling through. Would you come and heal us? Free us. Let us know your presence. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill us and empower us to be able to see your presence in our lives, to be able to see where you're guiding us, and help us to obey. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to give our lives to Jesus as Lord and to see what you value and what you value about us. Help us to know that we're loved Fill us up. Open our eyes and our ears to your presence in our lives. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah. All right, if you want a prayer, please come on up.